0: This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In today's episode, we introduce Tim Taba, co-founder and CEO of Germany's first publicly traded fintech company, Credit Shelf. His journey is an interesting one, from doctoral studies in Mannheim to a successful career in banking, to the Kellogg-Behau EMBA program, to, as of 2014, startup founder. We'll be discussing Germany's SME sector, P2P lending, why one might consider an IPO over equity capital, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy this episode. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, In beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the Best and Most Awesome Founder Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today.
1: So my my name is Tim Tabe. I'm co-founder and CEO of Credit Shelf, the marketplace lending business. So we uh, connect um, German SME borrowers that need capital and Institutional investors that are looking for investment opportunities in Germany. We we run a digital business, so it's, it's platform-based. We do everything from acquiring um, borrowers, analyzing opportunities, selecting the business that we want to to fund, and, and then we we continue the servicing all the way through the life cycle until the repayment.
0: So, Tim. Thank you so much for having me in your lovely offices here in Frankfurt. It's really great to to meet you and learn a little bit more about the business. It's uh, particularly interesting to meet with entrepreneurs that have come out of the incredible VEHAU entrepreneurial ecosystem. We can thank our friend Sven Groelich for bringing us together. I know you guys were in the same class. But I'm really interested to learning a little bit about you and kind of how you got to where you are. But maybe you can start with telling us a little bit about Credit Shelf mm. and just give us the 10,000 foot view of what Credit Shelf does and how it can serve their customers. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. So the, the 10,000 foot view of Credit Shelf is that we connect two sides that have a complementary need on the one side we have um, SME borrowers in Germany that are looking for additional capital in the sense of uh, debt. Um, for various reasons, they've, you know, been underserved by, by banks um, in the last couple of years and it continues that way. I mean, regulatory requirements, all kinds of things are happening. So there's a increasing gap on the funding side for SME borrowers in Germany. And on the other side, you have institutional investors that have, a, um, they can invest in many things, but not into SME companies because they're difficult to find. Right, You can't just go and put that into, instit- into SMEs just by... Um, and lending to them because there's a regulatory requirement that you need a banking license um, and it's very difficult to find these opportunities so what we do is we we find both sides and we have a platform that uh, analyzes sources these opportunities and makes them investable and thereby we bring two sides together that actually have you know a common interest which is to move capital from a to b and it's uh, it's a it's a transaction cost problem that we're solving through a digital platform so these SMEs
0: they're the backbone of the German economy. Mm. The German economy is is notable for the strong medium-sized enterprises that Mm. exist here. What makes you different from a bank as a lender?
1: Mm. So from a structural perspective, we are not taking these loans on balance sheet and and we don't have our own banking license. Um, We're using a setup with a banking partner that helps us fulfill our regulatory requirements. I think the, the the basic difference is we are running a completely digital business, so um, we don't have branches, um, we don't take the loans on balance sheet. But what we do is we facilitate the transaction between the two sides, as, as I mentioned before. So um, I think the most noticeable dis- difference for a client is, is speed. Right? We we are able to do it much much faster. We uh, we have a view in, uh, in we promise 48 hours. Mostly it's even quicker, and we can. Depending on availability of data, we can, you know, have a loan fulfilled from first request until, you know, payout in a week, whereas for banks, it probably takes months.
0: So if you're able to do it so quickly, is this something that's driven by an algorithm or is it a human interaction that determines the applicability and availability of funds for that Mm -hmm. business?
1: I think the secret is it's both. It's not a purely digital process, but it's also not a purely manual process. And the the way we look at it is we have we employ expert credit uh, analysts that have, uh, you know, their expertise and experience and their judgment. But we want them to use their brains and not their fingers. What it means is, you know, when we get 100 requests, not all of them will be able to, you know, get a loan, more or less probably 10% will. And Sorting through the hundred applications is uh, obviously something that you can automate. Right, so once you've got a first filter and you can you know what you're looking for, and you have you know I've used technology and, and data to, to kind of sort this sort through the the first batch, you can then use human brain to to make a final decision, and then the combination of the two um, makes it much more efficient.
0: So this is such a big market that you're targeting. I mean, just in Germany or in DACH alone, I imagine this is hundreds of billions of euros mm. worth of a, a size market. I'm interested in that kind of first filter. Mm. Do you have a specific segment of that market do you, that you target or like criteria that determine what range these uh, these mm. businesses fall into mm. that you're willing to, to accept?
1: Yeah, sure. So if you, go, if, you, if you go top down, the the German SME Loan market is probably 300 billion euros, Germany alone, and um, currently probably the latest data I've seen is maybe two percent of that is digital, in the sense that 98 percent of these loans are granted by banks through annual, uh, sorry, manual processes, meaning you walk into a branch, you talk to your bank manager, you you get a loan. Um, But that two percent was less than one percent probably a year ago or two years ago, so. Basically, the market's is huge. Um, we believe the opportunity is huge because the digitalization of, of, of SME or professional banking is going to happen. We very strongly believe it will. There is a lot of precedent that um, you can look. You can look to, for example, in the consumer segment. Are we are only lending to SME corporates, but the consumer loan market um, is one is smaller than the SME loan market, but it's already 15% digital. So And that used to be you know, low single digits probably five years ago. So the, the digitalization of that lending market has already happened and is starting to accelerate. And I think this is where we are right now with the SME market, where we see it accelerating. And we strongly believe that the um, digital penetration rates in, in SME lending will be similar to uh, consumer lending, even though a few years, if you will, lagging, which is a normal development because most things happen first on the consumer side and then you know, move into the B2B side.
0: Arising, or are you getting competition from outside of uh, Germany or, or are you really a lone player in this space right now?
1: Well, you're never fully alone. I would say we were very early because we started in 2014. Um, we ha- there's a few uh, competing platforms and there's a slight differentiation between models. So we are actually, as I said, we are arranging these loans from front to back. There's some comparison sites that basically attract. Requests and then channel them to banks. It's a slightly different model, although you know from the from the cons- from the customer front side it looks similar. Um, these are also growing strongly, and I think what we've also seen is um, some banks are starting to to catch up as well. There was one um, competing platform that was actually bought by ING, and ING is now building up their own digital lending front end, and we we, we believe that this is something that will. Work and will continue to work also for others. Probably, I think the one thing we do see though is that most of the banks in Germany currently have their hands full with other things, and it's probably not on their not on top of their agenda to build a digital front end for their SME clients. Whereas they, you know, see ninety-eight percent of the market still working the way it used to, so it's probably not high up on on their agenda. Even though you know, if if I was them, it probably should be. Um, but it's not, and uh, I think you mentioned from competition from outside, there is um, a platform from France that has started or has announced that they will start in Germany as well. So we, we see others coming in as, um, as we speak. But uh, I think that said, the market's huge. There's lots of space for, for a lot of people. And I think uh, good and healthy competition by professional players is not something we fear at all. I think it's uh, the market needs to develop. And the more people are working on the market development, I think it, it benefits everybody. Um yeah I think we we're trying to conserve that spirit right? I think you need to or we need we try to 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 remain agile to remain nimble as you said i think there's you know as in most startups and most businesses there's really no reason small companies should exist right the only reason they exist is because the big ones the incumbents are are leaving things un you know untended to or i mean banks have brand they have capital they have clients right they they really shouldn't be anyone um working with us but they are and why are they because you know as i said we're faster with digital i think this is uh, the advantage that the, um, the small companies have and being nimble and being agile is something that we try to conserve as, as long as possible
0: i want to ask one more question about the business oftentimes hearing from the founder the answer to this question really helps to frame the business are you a finance company or are you a technology company
1: that's a very good question, and this is actually a question we we continue and keep asking ourselves as well. I think um, the DNA of the people who started this company, started Credit Shelf, is finance. But we, we started consciously going into this business saying there needs to be a technology solution for what uh, what the problem is, meaning banks are too slow, it takes too long, the customer experience is is horrible. There has to be a technology solution to this. And I think as we as we grow and as we move along, we become more and more of a technology company. So we started as a fin, you know, now we're probably a fintech. And, you know, we might end up being tech um, somewhere down the road. But technology is in our in our business is um, is not you don't need technology f- for the sake of technology. It needs to serve a client purpose. And the first client you can serve manually. Right. And I think you, you, you and we, should, we did this and one should do this because you're still learning, you know, how the market works. You don't need technology on day one, but you need to have a business a client a solution for a client. And as you grow and scale, you need more technology because then of costs play a role and you try to build the business so that it becomes scalable. And once you move more to the tech side, I think that the challenge becomes to not lose the fin side too much because the business is still on the fin side.
0: I want to switch gears a little bit, but maybe you could take it a few steps back and kind of tell us your entrepreneurial journey and mm. where you come from to mm-hmm. how you got to where you are today. Okay,
1: sure. So my first job was actually at university. So I was a research assistant at, uh, at university writing a, a PhD on um, pricing of credit risky assets. So my journey started on the, on the risk and, uh, and, and ma- mathematical side of risk pricing. I then decided that I would not stay at university and I, I moved to, to London where I worked for Goldman Sachs for, for six years, also in risk management, so credit risk management and rating advisory. Um, then I moved to, uh, to Zurich, to, to UBS, where I also worked uh, another five years, first on the risk side and then I moved to the corporate institutional uh, client side, which is basically the uh, anything connected with um, corporate clients, lending, um, ethics, f- r- trade finance. That was also the time when I uh, decided I would go back to uh, to school. So I, I, I joined the um, the WHU Kellogg EMBA program in it was KW 16. I think it was 2013. I'm not exactly sure what, what year exactly. And the reason I went back to school because I, I felt that after 10 years plus in banking, my, my, my vision was so narrow that um, I didn't see a lot of what was happening outside anymore. I think to put it into perspective i uh, i moved to london in 2005 that was the you know still the heydays everything was was great Then you know two years later we woke up in the middle of the you know largest financial crisis um, since the 1930s and that was an incredible experience looking back it wasn't so much fun uh, while we were there but it was obviously looking back as the uh, you know educational program of a lifetime to, to see all this from the inside and i was said i was in the risk management of a large American investment bank so kind of in this in the eye of the storm and you know then when I moved to to Switzerland um I felt that you know that the crisis was kind of abating a little bit you know Draghi had given his whatever it takes speech and it looked a little bit like people were you know wiping the, the sweat pearls of their foreheads and saying okay great this is done let's Let's go back to the old days and we'll continue to do our business as, as we have for the last you know three or four decades and that clearly wasn't the way I was looking at the world I, I, my, my um, I had this distinct feeling that banking was going to change fundamentally um, but I didn't know how and but I, I, I decided I needed to go back and you know look at this a little more from the from a distance and get more of an outside in view and to see. Basically, what other people were um, were thinking about, and and how they were looking at things, and I, I chose the WHU Kellogg program for a distinct reason, which was I didn't want to go back and do another finance MBA, right? I, I clearly had enough finance education, but what I was missing was entrepreneurial education, even though I had uh, an interest in this. And I actually, in my first degree, I did I did spend a year in um, in Toronto in Schulich School, which is also a partner university of of WHU, and I did a part of the MBA program there and took entrepreneurial classes, but never did work as an entrepreneur after that um, for an extended amount of time. So I, I felt that I needed to go back and um, get an outside in view. And um, I remember going in, I, I was like, OK, this is an this has option value, you know, in finance speak, meaning you know, if if nothing happens, I'll, you know, I won't get any damage from getting more education and this might as, might even help my career. But it also provides an opportunity to just see if there comes something, if there's something along the way that provides an opportunity to do something myself, because that's, that's been something I've been wanting to do for basically all my life. I went to business school, you know, in my early 20s, thinking I would learn how to, you know, start a business, which of course you don't. Um, But this, um, this thought had been there for a while, so I I used it as a a catalyst. And eventually I, I came across. Know, very smart people helped me develop the idea, and then uh, you know everything went from there.
0: bit about your transition going from a, a multinational global banking environment into entrepreneurship and obviously there's a there's a cultural shift but also kind of speaking a little bit to the process uh,
1: it was a transition and obviously I, I didn't set this up alone so I had a I had two founding partners um, it was a transition I mean we, we spent probably two years before we made the move analyzing um the, the market that was during my my emba time we, we, we kind of did extensive research on, on all kinds of things and but there is the point in time where you have to say N- are we doing it or not <clears throat> right and um so we've, we found a good way of, of doing it in the sense that we had a third founder who was already helping us setting the scene we started fundraising and as soon as we had a a relatively good idea that this is actually something that is financeable, or fundable. Um, we might be we, we made the move, but it was still, you know, someone asked me a few weeks ago, is it, is it diving into cold water? And I, I told him, Look, it's not that you're, you're kind of up there three meters in the air, uh, taking a plunge, and you don't even know if there's water in the, in the, in the, you know, in the pool. So that was more the feeling. And I think but but to be fair, um, founding a company you can try to rationalize it, but it's not a rational decision, right? I think um, f- from a statistical basis, the, uh, the probability of, of succeeding um, on day one is re- really low. So you have to have, a, I think, um, an inner motivation to, to try to do it because you, one, you really believe in the opportunity. Two, I think you, you really want to do it because it's something you've always wanted to do and then you need a lot of luck.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the process of idea to market mm-hmm. i think you mentioned you capitalized it's mm-hmm. early stage capitalization so were you bootstrapped for any period mm-hmm. of time did you take early investors what was that early mm-hmm. process
1: like yeah so i think the the very first stage of this was we um we tried to pitch this idea to our uh, my co-founder and i work for the same for the same bank group so we we pitched this idea to our employer and said look you know this could be a good idea we believe that SME lending will be digital in the future. <clears throat> well, why don't you give us a little bit of money and some freedom, and we'll, we'll try to do it? And uh, we didn't get very far, which is, I think, the was the expected, but it's also the usual outcome when you have you know disruptive ideas in in big organizations. So we decided the idea was good enough, and we wanted to do this. So we started to, to try to see if we could do it ourselves. Um, the beginning, we, you know. It, Bootstrapped, yes. we put our own money in. I think the first capital always have to come from the founders, and we had, we were lucky enough to have some reserves from you know previous employment histories that we could, you know, could fund the business for the first year. And then, as I said, as we as we received our first external funding, we uh, we uh, we quit our jobs and, and moved on, and moved on.
0: Did you raise that external funding
1: through some business
0: angels? Did you go straight to VC play, or were you pretty traditional in that approach? How did you? Mind a
1: little bit of that yeah no so it's it's it was not a traditional vc and um, we were very lucky to um, to meet our um you know we have a major shareholder today who was also you know our first investor in the business back in the day and um it was a relatively young organization fund on, on the other side as well so we were both kind of starting out as as businesses and um we had a very good understanding and uh, of the concept of what we were trying to do, and a very trusting relationship. So we, we decided to you know both be a little bit of our first investment. So we were one of the first investments uh, they made. You know they were obviously the first investor in us, and and we and from there on we we grew together.
0: It's always great when you can be the early investment in a fund. The earlier you are in the lifespan of that fund, the more <laughs> runway. You get in order to get to growth mm-hmm. um, so it sounds like you if your investors are still part of the organization you were pretty values aligned did they also come from the financial services industry was that what made the marriage
1: yeah the uh principle of, of this fund is has a history in in financial services and and other things but uh, he you know he very well understands the uh, ins and outs of of banking and we had a, a shared frustration with some of the ways that, you know, financing works in traditional banks and traditional processes. So uh, this was the, the basis for, our, I would say, a very good understanding at the beginning that, you know, this is actually a really good opportunity to digitalize this process and to make it much more convenient and much faster.
0: I want to jump ahead a little bit because mm-hmm. something that's interesting about Credit Shelf, to me at least, was um, you got to a phase where you were ready for growth capital. And instead of going large, Series A, Series B, to really expand your business, you took the approach of going IPO. Mm-hmm. Now, if I read correctly—correct me if I'm wrong—it was about five years after founding mm-hmm. that that you went IPO. Um, four four years. Yeah. Four years. Well, you just don't hear that story very often. Although I'm sure you've had this, you answered this question more times than you care to. Can you share a little bit about? Your strategic approach mm-hmm. in doing that, rather than yeah. uh, taking institutional capital entirely. Yeah.
1: Sure, this question many times, and you know, not the last on the on the roadshow, of course, where people wanted to to understand why we were doing it. Um, there was there was three reasons, three main reasons why we did it. I mean, one, capital. Um, but you you rightly said we could have probably raised capital uh, elsewhere, but. Um, there is, you know, still probably some sort of shortage of growth capital in, in, in Germany, but that was, you know, I'm sure we could have raised it in, in other ways. Um, but two and three, to me, are more important. One is is credibility, right? Because we, as a a multi-sided marketplace business, um, are very dependent on trust that we get from at least the uh, you know the borrower side. Because you could argue, well, they they take your money. Why do they need to trust you? Is absolutely not true. The um, the decent credit borrowers, they want to know who they're working with. Right? They won't they won't just take money from anyone because they want to build a relationship. They want to be sure that you're still there next year. Um, very important. The German Mittelstand has, uh, you know, these companies have been around decades. right they, they, they will not just work with anyone who they don't trust. The same is true on the investor side. You know, investors um, who are buying these loans, they're not just looking through. see who they're funding of course they analyze who um, the borrowers are but they also need to trust the organization that makes the the link so for us it's very important to to signal and um, make sure that they understand that we are really in this you know one for the long term but also we take governance really seriously we are very serious about you know all the things that you as an institutional investor will need to to clarify when you do your due diligence right and obviously it helps to um, to go, if you will, the painful route to say um, we go public, meaning, and we're not only going public. We, we went to the prime standard, so we have quarterly IFRS reporting, you know, governance requirements, all the all the things that all large companies have as well. On the one hand, it's painful, but on the other hand, it it builds the organization um, on a much stronger, if you will, basis. Right now, we t- it took some time to get these processes running, but what we found is that the organization is much stronger now as a result um, we've developed um, as we you know had to implement all these processes we've also developed a lot and it makes a big difference to our institutional investors who will now you know basically tick the box and say okay they're transparent you know they're adhering to government standards i get um, quarterly reporting in a in a decent quality and it's it's i don't have to worry about all of this which could be an issue with a private company doesn't have to be but could be and the the last point is is recruiting, and um, we found that it makes a bit difference. And that was our hypothesis going in, but we found it's true to make a bit big difference by attracting um, for attracting talented people. Um, because you are a public company, um, it makes it much easier for people that we recruit from outside of Germany to do their due diligence on who they're you know talking to. But it also makes a difference for people who. Um, join the organization and say this is um, this gives me a perspective to you know be early if you will in, in the life cycle of a public company and um, who knows where we'll go but they uh, it makes a big we we found that it makes a big difference in recruiting
0: I'm interested in the recruitment side mm-hmm. because um, you know I, I do understand startups operate a little differently in Germany than they do in the US it's almost impossible to hire talent at a startup in the US without um, having a pretty significant option pool. Mm-hmm. Most VC funds will be 12 to 15 percent are mm-hmm. allocated for options, so it's significant. And that's one of the carrots that you use to, mm-hmm. to recruit. And as a result of that, you get a very different type of team. Mm-hmm. You know, they tend to be risk tolerant, they tend to be, you know, eye on the prize, looking looking at the at the finish line. I think once you IPO you become a public company, you, you may have a little more backing and, and credibility, but do you see that your, the profile of your talent changes at all when you mm. change that structure mm. of your organization?
1: Um, no, I don't think so. And I think one of the things we realized as we went through the IPO process before and after is that my personal view, and I think it was, well, was our learning, um, we also had an, an option program people have a different concept or um, you, how to say this, the, the perceived value of an option on the employee side is not you know, the economic value that you as a company have to provide. Right? When, you, when you go through the, the process of, of valuing the, your option program, you say, okay, this is what I have to reserve for my option program. And you ask the people, so what do you perceive the value of your options to be? It's a big difference, right? So or, or saying it another way is a very inefficient way of paying people. Um, and now that we are a public company, we still use um, equity to pay people, but we provide it in straight shares. So basically, it's not even an option program anymore. It's a it's a uh, it's a share based compensation program, which we believe aligns interests, makes um, people Think about you know the share price and the, the future of the company, but we we moved away from having a leveraged, if you will, equity program, which an option program always is when you have a, a reserve price um, to as a straight share program. And the, the, the beauty of being listed is that it's not just theoretical; it's it's real, right? And you have a vesting still, but you will, you know that you will be able to sell the shares once they're vested, so it's not a theoretical exit, you know, somewhere in the future. At a multiple that you can't, you know, comprehend um, as a as a human being in the back of your mind. So we find that um, equity-based compensation, based on shares, is much more efficient than, you know, option-based compensation on a, in a private setting.
0: I wanna bring it back to you again real quick because um, going through an IPO, you, know, you mentioned earlier that you're trying to maintain the culture and the values of a startup, but obviously with the reporting and the regulatory environments and mm-hmm. the, the, the greater transparency of being a public company, mm-hmm. you're probably moving a little bit away from mm-hmm. being what most people would consider to be a startup. Can you talk a little bit about how you as a leader and a founder, how your work life changed when you made that transition?
1: Mm. That's it's clearly a change, and I think um, the the most obvious is that you know I spend a lot more time with investors now than than I used to. Um, in the private setting, we had a handful of private investors who you know I would speak to once in a while. They would call me, I would call them. It's it's not. Obviously, the same anymore. Now we have a quarterly reporting schedule. We have we do roadshows. Uh, we we do speak a lot to investors. That that's changed. I think what what's also changed is um, the thinking a little bit, and in the sense that you mentioned regulation. Of course, you know, as a public company, we have um, reporting requirements that go beyond quarterly reporting. So if we do something substantial, or we even think about something substantial, <laughs> we have to consider is this ad hoc. Do we need to report this ad hoc? Is this something that the that, that the markets need to know about now? Um, I think that is something that you need to be aware about, and you need to I think make sure that it doesn't stop you from from being creative and from thinking about things. Right? I think it's uh, it's clearly one of my jobs now to manage this process in the sense, you know, what do I need to communicate to whom? It's it's not always easy, and I think we've we found this ourselves um, as we made this transition. That, and, and as you cannot speak about everything all the time anymore to all or any of the people that you have in your in your organization, it it becomes a challenge of of um, communicating better. Um, this is something that is still, you know, something that we are working on to find the right balance between, you know, being communi- communicating in a timely manner making sure everybody needs to know everybody knows what they need to know but at the same time not you know creating too much confusion or um, it's clearly that's become more difficult i think very clearly you, know,
0: you mentioned earlier when we were talking about employee options the difference between perceived value and and tangible value. And I think that same narrative could be applied to the business as a whole. Mm. An advantage and a disadvantage of an early stage startup is there's a perceived value that may not be congruent with the, the more tangible value. It's August 2019. There's some perhaps writing on the wall of people talking about recession in the future. Do you feel now you're more tied to the fluctuations of the global economy or even the regional economy, and how do you feel that affects your future potential for growth or or capitalization
1: or things mm-hmm. along those lines? Um, I think our business model has, has always had you know some ties to the economic cycle. You know, even though we're not taking loans on our own balance sheet um, per se they're still you know first question investors will ask you is you know how is does this work through a recession or through a credit cycle we believe that we strongly believe that um, this business as we're building it needs to be able to perform through a recession through a cycle right and actually it's nobody wants to have a recession but it's maybe also an opportunity to take this off the table for once and for all to say, look, we've gone through it. Everything was fine. You know, you don't need to worry about it. Um, but I agree with you that um, as we go into maybe a not so I would say not so clear economic path over the next months, And who knows, right? Maybe you will listen to this next year and uh, there hasn't been a recession at all. Who knows? But it's, it's clearly something that um, we're we're conscious about more on the on the origination side as we say look what what does it mean for the borrowers that we're serving what does it mean because we're we're um, providing these investment opportunities for the investors and we obviously want them to have a inward performance through the cycle um I think one of the first things when after we went public um, one of our larger investors told me it's like look you know y- y- there's one thing you can't one mistake you shouldn't make which is to basically have market, day-to-day market information influence your, your running of the business or your decision making. Right? I think that's probably one of the more difficult things that you, I needed to learn as you know we went through this process. Yes, I look at the stock price every day, but it should never inform the decision that I make on the operating business, and it doesn't. Right,
0: right. Well, whether there's a recession or not, I can't think of anyone who I'd rather have you know captaining the ship than someone that literally worked mm-hmm. in the heart of the subprime lending crisis so you i can't imagine you're going to see any worse than you you have to stomach yeah. 10 <laughs> that's years true ago, right? yeah
1: that's true <laughs> you know comparing back to the 2008 2009 you know times this is clearly not anywhere near you know as bad as it as it was back then
0: i want to ask you to think forward into the future, can you tell me a little what do you see as the future for the SME sector in Germany?
1: Mm. What we see from from clients that you know knock on our doors and that, that we're serving, they tend to have very good niche businesses in some of you know very interesting areas of, of the economy, and, and a lot of them are international. A lot of them are very innovative on their own product side. I think what we're trying to bring to them is innovation on the liability side of the balance sheet. Because if you ask 100 entrepreneurs, you know, how is it going, what are you doing? I will take any bet that 99.x percent will talk about the next product, the next market, and probably none of them will say, I, I raised great funding from the bank last week and I paid x point, x percent, and that was actually 20 basis points less than I paid you know a year ago. It's not how they think. And, but it's still you know a huge you know in our mind a huge opportunity for value creation for for funding properly and then moving on to do you know the things that you do best, which is which is on the other side of your balance sheet. Um, why is that relevant to the question you asked? I think they need to be able to move on in, in the business that they do and obviously there are challenges as well. you know you, the, uh, the digitalization and shifting, shifting rules of the game, if you will, in automotive, for example, will have an effect on on German um, companies and it will trickle down to to SME as well because this is basically uh, you have the, the large OEMs and then you have, you know large suppliers, but then behind that you have a lot of, you know, Mittelstrand's companies that are suppliers to either OEMs directly or the suppliers. But what we find there is that they're they're very flexible. They're pretty nimble in in thinking ahead. They are um, a lot of times they we fund programs or, or um, we fund projects that they are working on that are really innovative right for example weight saving in, uh, in components for 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 car manufacturing or electric mobility or other things that they are already working on that um, they were quick on their feet to to find a way to to see what the future will be, and and to be able to position position themselves. So yes, we see a few that have relatively old management, but a lot of them are also um, you know next generation already, or or, or started up from uh, from people who are who are our age. So,
0: pretty stable uh, market base with potential growth especially as the younger generations come in that are more comfortable operating mm-hmm. and doing transacting mm-hmm. in in the online space maybe you can just tell me a little bit about the future of Credit Chef. Mm-hmm. Where, where are you now? Where are you going? Do you have any big milestones you're seeking? Where do you see yourself a few years down the road? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the or the downsides of being public is obviously that I can't tell you everything, but uh, what I can share is what we have also made public, anyway. So um, we have a midterm goal of providing 500 million euros of credit per year to the uh, to the German economy. Um, we're not there yet, but we're growing towards that. Um, we are on a on a roughly, I would say, two X trajectory for the moment, where we you know double. Volumes uh, or have doubled volumes in the past uh, year over year, more or less. Um, as I mentioned before, the market is is huge. It's 300 billion, 2 um, percent digitally penetrated. We believe the penetration rates could well be you know 10 and more going forward. And that's only the you know the the market that's been served. There's probably another 100 billion out there that's not been served. And if, there's also data for that if if um, that uh, that we've looked at basically, if you compare the the GDP growth rate over the last ten, twelve years compared to the growth rate of of lending volumes outstanding, there's a delta that you know accounts for another hundred billion that should have been lent but haven't been lent. So we believe you know there's a large opportunity to to provide this uh, this to fill this credit gap and to provide a service in the digitalizing world to people who are looking for digital solutions. So. A long way of saying uh, we we want to continue to grow. Um, we want to continue to improve our processes, make it more convenient for for users on both sides, meaning faster and easier for people to apply for credit, um, easier and and better for institutional investors to invest in credit. If you um, if you look at surveys that are being done in, in, in this and other spaces in, in lending spaces, the the number one pain point that all of the SME companies um, Mention when they get asked well, what is how do you think about lending or, or borrowing uh, it's the amount of paperwork that's required the pain of, of going through the process and the time it takes to do it right so these are the, the things that we're trying to address and what we find is um, people are people who think about it for a moment and maybe it's a lot of that the next generation clearly is not um is not willing to put up with a lot of what is what has been the norm in the past. Right. You go to a bank, you wait four to six weeks for an appointment. You it takes three months before you get your loan. They they fund themselves privately on on their on their mobile phone in two minutes. And it takes six months to fund their business. It's clearly something they're not willing to to accept. And we will continue to work to being positioned to to fulfill this uh, this requirement.
0: All right, Tim. I wanna I wanna just do two rapid fire, Please. very personal questions to get into you. I ask everyone I I speak with these same questions. At least seventy five percent of them roll their eyes and hate <laughs> answering them. So I'm gonna prepare you right now. But uh, okay. it's I've always found that you can learn so much about a person mm-hmm. by what they read. Mm-hmm. What book is on your bedside table right now, or audiobook, or what have you read recently that you'd like to
1: share? Yeah, actually. Um I still read books uh, with paper and all, <laughs> and I um, there's actually two right now on, on my desk. It's uh, one is um, good to great. You've probably you probably know it. It's been on my reading list for a long time, and I, I finally got around starting it. Um, very good. I, I've read half of it, and I can only recommend it's so the first half is great. I'm sure the second half will be as good. The second one is uh, actually uh, I forgot who who wrote it, but it's in. Um, it's a report on the chernobyl uh accident right basically and the reason i bought it is um i think you learn as much from success stories and probably more from from disasters right and so to see what what happened to an organization that was you know outside in pro- probably well run because it was was a was a live nuclear power plant right? it's still cool up in in flames and it's um it's a very, very interesting story. All
0: right. All right one more question for you, uh, in, in a similar vein, what's on your playlist?
1: Actually, to be very honest, I used to have, um, a subscription to what's the name, Spotify, Spotify but I haven't used it in a long time. Well, you're so. going to have to download it because that's <laughs> where you're going
0: to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule and inviting me here to your offices. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation, and I look forward to sharing your story with the aspiring entrepreneurs at your alma mater at Veho.
1: Thank you very much for the time. It's great Great. to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, folks, that was Tim Taba, co-founder and CEO of Credit Shelf, Germany's first publicly traded fintech startup, and a unique business that links Germany's small and medium-sized businesses to investors that provide the capital they need. Coming soon in episode six, we'll speak with Philip von Hammerstein, former founding GM of Le Wagon Coding Bootcamp Berlin, and current head of corporate education at Code University of Applied Sciences. We'll be discussing software development, teaching people how to code, non-technical entrepreneurs, and productivity tips. It'll be a fun conversation with a charismatic entrepreneur. Hope you'll like it. Bis nächstes Mal.